This is Making a Scientist, the podcast by young scientists for young scientists, featuring cutting-edge science and all of the life and work advice that you'll ever need to succeed. It's brought alive by brilliant scientists and it's hosted by me, Alex Ainscombe. We made it all the way to the series finale, and what an episode this is. This week, my guest is Dr. Lucy Lowe, who is a scientific program manager of the Tissue Chips for Drug Screening program at the National Institutes of Health, which encompasses programs of work such as the Tissue Chips for Disease Modeling and Tissue Chips in Space. Organs on chips, or tissue chips, are some of the hottest tools in the biosciences right now. In this episode, find out what they are, how they have immense potential to deliver huge benefits for patients and to alleviate some of the ethical concerns of animal research by offering an alternative and perhaps a better way of testing new drugs, cosmetics, or even running clinical trials without causing any harm to animals or humans. Lucy and I also discuss how organs on chips are being used in experiments carried out aboard the International Space Station and some of the challenges associated with carrying out biological research in space. We'll also hear all about Lucy's career path, how she made the decisions that she did, and hear her incredible advice for early career researchers. I know I say this every time, but this really is a truly brilliant episode. Let's begin. Dr. Lucy Lowe, good morning. Thank you very much for joining me this morning. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Good morning, Alex. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here. It's lovely to meet you and looking forward to chatting. Yeah, it's going to be amazing. So I'm so enthusiastic about this topic. Organ on a chip has been my life for the last five or six years, and I've just been so all consumed by it. So to talk with uh, talk with you is uh, honestly, it's, it's a pleasure. So I'd like to <laughs> dive right in with organs on yeah, chips. Yeah, let's do it. Um, so very first question then, what are organs on chips and, and where did the concept come from? So if you've been working on this, then you undoubtedly know yourself, but I'm happy to, I'm happy to try yeah, and explain please. from my end as well. So, so organs on chips are little bioengineered devices that uh, contain human cells, or in our case, we choose to work mainly on human cells, um, in little bioreactors uh, fed by microfluidic channels, and they recreate the structure and function of human organs and tissues. So basically, they're these little devices that you can put cells in, in a certain kind of architecture with the right kind of support materials. You can feed them with media that contains all the kinds of growth factors and things that they need. And you can just basically sort of let them do their thing. It's like a little home away from home. And they replicate um, <laughs> function of your organs and tissues in ways that uh, it's just really difficult to recreate in other kinds of models right now. So there's all different kinds of ways of modeling human organs and tissues, but these uh, microphysiological systems or organs on chips are these three style systems where they they essentially create tissues that are a bit more uh, true to life to the ones actually inside your body than uh, say if you were to put them in a petri dish or if you were looking at animal tissues so we like to think of them as slightly more realistic models of human uh, tissue uh, in these little bioengineered devices that means Mm. that we can look at different drugs and diseases and uh, really sort of try and get some better models if you like of of human tissues and human diseases so it's it's such a fascinating concept um where where's it come from how did how did organ ownership come come about well, I feel like it was one of those ideas that was such a great idea that someone would have come up with it at some point anyway. Um, <laughs> but certainly I work at the National Institutes of Health and we like to think that we had a bit of a hand in helping spur the development of them. Of course. So yeah. <laughs> um, 
So essentially, though, the, the first sort of the archetypal, if you like, organ on a chip came out from an idea from Don Ingber's lab, um, who was at Harvard mm-hmm. and is at the Wies Institute. And one of his postdocs, Dan Hur, and he created um, a, a chip that essentially recreated lung function. And they did this by putting um, the uh, sort of the airway cells in this little device. And then they added biomechanical forces by stretching the membrane that the cells were sitting on by applying a vacuum that uh, ran in a channel down the side. And so it was such an elegant idea, this kind of lung on a chip model. And Mm. it was one of the very first uh, organ on chip models that came out. But at the same time, lots of other people were starting to think about how can we recreate sort of organs and and tissues in a three-dimensional organization? And how can we do that? So with advances that came in microfluidics and with... um, 3D printing and microfabrication and bioprinting. Over the last 10 years or so, this this field has really kind of grown. Um, but uh, yeah, so the, the kind of that first chip was published in the literature. It came out in Science in 2010. But mm-hmm. then the FDA and the NIH were like, oh, you know, we obviously knew what kind of research was going on. But we we're like, this is a really great way to look at how... Um, we can use these kinds of models to uh, see in potentially in the drug development process and see how we can uh, advance regulatory science, basically. Mm. So the NIH and the FDA got together and funded some programs. And then that's basically kind of how it all kicked off. And then the NIH is still funding programs, you know, 10, 12 yeah. years later. Uh, FDA is doing a lot of work. DARPA as well, the Department. Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency here in the US is doing lots of uh, has done lots of uh, research funding for organs on chips as well. Yeah, so the field's just really exploded over the last ten years. It really has. So, um, something that I always uh, find in the literature is that there's there's often a, a wording issue potentially, and a lot of people say there are things like organs on chips or tissue chips. So, would you yeah. mind just explaining what the difference between a tissue and an organ chip is? So honestly, there isn't really any. It's <laughs> it's definitely just um, they're all kind of synonymous. So there's there's one of the things that we do talk about in the field is what should we call these things? And pretty much everyone is like, well, I'm going to call it what I want to call it, and yeah. then we'll just have to sort of work out how to get along. So the official <laughs> term that NIH uses is microphysiological systems, which is a very broad term. Hmm. Uh, we also talk about organs on chips. We talk about tissue chips. Uh, they're all pretty much the same thing. Within that broad name, though, there's lots of kind of different levels, if you like, of complexity. So some chips can be quite simplistic. They might just contain balls of cells or organoids in microfluidic platforms. Mm-hmm. So these cells in, you know, in a ball are still feeling sort of some of the um, stretch or some of the shear forces, the biomechanical forces as fluid flows past them. But then you might get much more complicated chips where specific cell types are actually placed in very particular areas that are designed very much to recreate the architecture of, of your, your organs. So, you know, you might have um, uh, cells in a liver chip that um, mm-hmm. are subject to different amounts of oxygenation as it comes through the media. So you're essentially creating an oxygen gradient within a liver, uh, liver chip. So there's lots of different ways that uh, people can create and replicate the different kinds of um, uh, internal media milieu of your body but um it yeah the names are pretty much all synonymous and they're all kind of meaning the same thing 
Yeah, sure. It's, it's interesting because, yeah, like you say, I think everybody's just like, it's a bit of a free-for-all, right? Like everyone will just do, <laughs> do moment, what they yeah. do. Yeah, yeah. And there doesn't seem to be so much um, direction. But I think uh, microphysiological systems, personally, I think that is, is, is a better all-encompassing term. And it exactly. also sounds pretty cool as well. <laughs> um, we say so, microphysiological systems or organs on chips and people are like, oh, organs on chips. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I suppose it, it's become it's become such a big buzzword. And I mean, yeah. yeah, we can talk all about our future uh, in a bit. But yeah, it's, it, I think that the future of organs on chips is, is truly fascinating. Um, but what I want to focus on just, just right now is uh, what are the biggest uh, challenges or the major limitations that are associated with organ on a chip technology right now as you see it? Yeah. So um, there's... It's new technology, right? So with any yeah. new technology, a decade sounds like a long time, but in biological, you know, bioengineering terms, it's like it's still very young, essentially. Um, there's a lot of challenges that people still need to work out. So one of the big ones is uh, what cells do you put in there? Yeah. So with new technologies like stem cells, induced pluripotent stem cells, you know, they, they've been around for about a decade or so. Well, Yamanaka, who helped create the first protocols, he got the Nobel Prize for it in 2012. So it's less than 10 years since that kind yeah. of technology has been around. So, you know, we very much encourage our researchers to use stem cell technologies to put on their chips because then they're using essentially renewable sources of cells that can be taken from a patient or a donor and then uh, created on a chip to make like a U on a chip, you know, talk about precision medicine type efforts. But stem cell technology is, is still young. Uh, it can be really difficult to get the kinds of cells that you want. The differentiation protocols might not be very good. Uh, it might create tissues that are uh, functionally very immature. So if you're creating, mm. say, neural cells and you're trying to look at neurodegenerative diseases, you might get neurons that are actually very fetal in nature. They're very young. Um, or they don't last very long on tissue chips. So they might only last a few days and then they might start doing all kinds of crazy things. And so it can be very difficult to look at long-term disease pathology or repeated exposures sure. of different yeah. kinds of drugs and things like that. So stem cells are have this phenomenal promise, but it's, you know, it depends on the tissue you're using. It can be really tricky. So, you know, there's all kinds of pros and cons with yeah. all the different cell sourcing. Things so so well. whilst... Yeah, so whilst all of these stem cell protocols are being refined and, and developed, um, what should organ on a chip researchers be striving to use in these in, in these chips? Should they be looking more to use uh, primary type cells because you know every, that's that's what would we would get from somebody, or would you look more to use potentially um, cells that you would um, like like a cell line more, you know, yeah. some, something that's more robust? What's what, yeah. what's your feeling on it? So it's not a very helpful answer because it's, <laughs> it really depends on the question you're asking. Yeah. So if you're looking at a cancer on a chip and you can recreate what you need to show with a cell line that you can buy from, you know, Lonza or wherever, and you can ask the question that you need to do and ask it in a reproducible and reliable way, then mm -hmm. use the cell line that works. Okay. Um, if you're looking at something else that um, requires a certain disease phenotype, then you might be having to look at primary cells or from donors or something like that. Um, and then if you can make your model with those cells and get reliable results that replicate what they're supposed to replicate, you know, it does what it says on the tin, if anyone remembers that advert, um, <laughs> then, you know, that works too. So like I said, we very much encourage our researchers to push towards the use of IPS because mm -hmm. we want to help that technology um, yeah. you know, mature as well. But 
it really depends on the question you're asking. And this is going to come, we come back to this over and over again in the tissue chip field is, you know, what's the context of use of your platform? So, you know, if it's, it's all very well to create this, this lovely little model of something, but if it doesn't do what it's supposed to do in a reliable way and answer the questions that you need to ask, then it's not a very helpful model. So it's what people really need to do is, is think about the context of use of their model and then work out what's the best way to do that scientifically at this point. So yeah, that's totally. kind of how we focus on it. You know, we say, do what the science needs you to do. If you need to use a mixture of cell lines and primary lines and, you know, IPS cells, then do it if you get a good model out of it. No, definitely. And I think as well, um, it might be worth mentioning about how organ on a chip is, is, is kind of like a tool, this technology. So, you know, if you don't necessarily need to go through all of the hassle of, you know, making and setting up your, your chips because a lot of people fabricate their chips in-house, then, and you could just do this in, in a little dish if you're looking at, you know, expression of something, then you don't need to go through it. So I suppose, yeah, um, that uh, for me as well, because that's the big bottleneck is, is, is the fabrication of chips. Yeah, so that's um, That's a yeah, big thing. Absolutely. And ev- everybody makes it differently, uh, which I find is... Also a little bit, um, there's, there's no sort of like unified way to do it, but you know, yeah. it's, it's one of those that if there was a unified way to do it, I'm sure there's somebody who's going to be turning a profit of it and then it becomes who's going to be <laughs> that person. And this is why everyone's got their own different protocols. And it's really like, yeah, it makes it, it makes it quite difficult to, to, to find out which one, which one to use. Um, it does. Well, and that actually is the exact, you know, that you just hit on another challenge, which is this, you know, there's so much difference between how people make them, how, which cells they use, all of yeah. that kind of stuff. It can be very different, for, difficult for standardization. It can be very yeah. difficult for commercialization. And so that's definitely something that everyone in the field is working for so that, you know, we can get to a stage where we've got all these different kinds of chips that we can send to the FDA and say, hey, you know, here's the data from this chip. And they'll be like, oh, yes, we know this one. So, yeah, for sure. So, um, Winding it back to something a little bit more uh, simplistic, what's, what's your favourite type of organ on a chip device? <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm not going to pick favourites. <laughs> okay, fair <laughs> I love all our chips equally. <laughs> so, we, like fund, we have about 50... <laughs> So I manage a program where we have about 50 or 60 different projects and every single platform is slightly different um, and special in its own way. So, uh, no, I actually really enjoy working with all of the different kinds of chips, although I am a neuroscientist by training. So I will okay. just say that anything that's got neurons on, I'll always I'll always listen in a little bit more. more, more I carefully. see. I see. Fair, <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Um so you've already touched on IPSCs. Um, so I, I, but I wanted to maybe ask this question in a slightly different way. So you, I, I want to really understand how you think we could realize the the the, uh, the blend of personalized medicine organs on a chip because i've heard from a lot of people before how the the revolution in genomics is going to be the way forward and we're already seeing it with covid and how this next generation sequencing is also like something that's done by default with pcrs so in addition to ipscs on a, on a chip do you think how how can we translate it from something that's done in a in in a lab environment where you've got you know a green fingered lab assistant who's particularly able to uh, to get a, uh, this organ on a chip running to something that could be routinely used in in uh, in hospitals because you know you want to have this uh, you want to have this like selection of the best drug for the best person right like you know you want yeah. to have the the, the the selectivity how do you think we can realize this. I know it's a pretty difficult question. Um... Yeah, it is a really great question because it is a really difficult question. Mm. Um, 
So I think in terms of when you're thinking about personalized medicine and precision medicine, and you said like in a hospital context, and you start mm. thinking about clinical trials, then you have to be focusing on uh, certainly iPS cells to populate at least uh, certain relevant portions of you know your chip, your cells on, on in your chip, because that's how you get patient-specific responses. Yeah. Um, but then you also need to be working on creating a platform that uh, technically, technologically, is very reliable and very robust and doesn't necessarily need a green-fingered lab tech, like you said, or, you know, we like to, to joke and call them chip whisperers. You, know, you need a, a technology that doesn't need a chip whisperer just to I like make that it work. <laughs> so, I have to steal that one in future oh, presentations. Oh, yeah, please do. Please do. Um, but this is this is this is one of the challenges is that mm. the, at the moment the tech can be very involved and it can require quite great in-depth expertise to be able to make them work reliably and so you know there really is going to be a push in the field towards uh, creation of systems that are more automated they mm. might be therefore a bit more simplistic so that they don't require you know eight years of lab experience to be able to get something up and running um but, um, you know, we really do see that there's going to be this need for creations of systems that are just complex enough that can be automated to a certain extent so that they can be translatable in any situation and not just in a hospital, you know, lab, but also maybe on a battlefield or, mm. you know, maybe out in remote areas of Africa or, you know, even in space, mm. you know, for astronauts yeah. in future. So, you know, the, the kind of the push towards creation of, of automated systems that are, are a little bit or are, are fit for purpose, that, but mm -hmm. just as complex as they need to be, I think is going to be a huge deal. Yeah, uh, but actually, one of the things the NIH is doing is actually funding a program right now called Clinical Trials on a Chip. And oh. this is very much addressing the question you just asked. And then it's, it's not that we're suddenly going to be running clinical trials on chips, but it's that, um, as you said before, chips are tools. They're tools mm. in the process of trying to understand disease, trying to develop drugs. And so we want to see how they can be used in the context of decision making during a clinical trial. So, for example, if they can be used to help stratify patient subgroups. So if you're looking at a, a new chemotherapy or combinations of chemotherapies, if you can test on chips and work out what kinds of patients are going to respond better to which kinds of combinations, then you already have your patient stratification set before you even start a clinical trial. So there's all these opportunities to do kind of almost first in human um, style experiments on chips before they go into humans and i think that's also going to really help push that personalized yeah. medicine aspect yeah that's absolutely fascinating and i suppose you'd, you'd even use the same people right you'd uh, you know for the clinical yeah. trials it's the you know absolutely. It's, it's, it's your response beforehand so that's um that's absolutely... and it's another way to validate it's another way to validate the chips as well because if you're getting clinical trial data and then you can mm. take you can do the same experiment or test the same drugs on the tissue chip you're seeing very clearly how well the tissue chip actually replicates and recreates that individual person's response, which is going to feed in towards the validation efforts we were talking about. Yeah, for sure. So this is a, a, another like really fascinating part of the field, which I think is, um, I mean, it's just starting to uh, to take off. There have been a few publications on it, but it's the idea of the, the body on a chip or the whole body on a chip. And um, this is where you would link lots of different organ on chips together and um, yep. and you would usually do so via a common medium that sort of mimics blood if you have connections via vascular type channels but if you wanted to run a clinical trial on a chip would it be just looking at somebody's liver rather than the whole body on a chip 
uh, because it's going to be again quite difficult to you know get everything all primed at the same time and ready to to run the body on a chip type experiment so how would the clinical on a trial uh, clinical trial on a chip uh, work so i'm gonna go back to that que- that point of it depends on the question you're asking okay again. So if you're looking at bone cancer, but what you're really interested in is how toxic this combination chemotherapeutics is for, you know, liver, then you might want to link systems, but they might be quite simplistic systems or, you know, you might even not necessarily need to physically link them, but you could just take the media from one and then put it in a liver chip and see how it affects it. So there's there's lots of different ways you can address that question. Uh, But I would also just point out that uh, I mentioned DARPA had been involved in funding over the years and they Mm -hmm. actually fund the development of a 10 organ body on a chip system they they gave uh, large grants to uh, two what they call performers in the darker <laughs> realm and uh, right. and those labs actually created 10 organ chip linked systems uh, Don Ingber's group at the Vs was one of them and he created the system that they call the interrogator which is mm. uh, terribly exciting um, it's a fierce and name. Then, <laughs> it is very fierce, yeah. And, uh, and Linda Griffith at MIT created yep. uh, their own 10-organ system. Um, but the stuff that's coming out from them now, and there's uh, sort of this move towards commercialization of those systems as well, suggests to me that there is going to be commercially available linked multi-organ systems over the coming years that will be very, very informative for some of these questions that you were talking about, like when you're trying to set up a clinical trial, like you need to know what effect does the drug have on the actual disease it's supposed to be working on, but does it create toxic metabolites as it goes through liver metabolism? Does it create something that's going to damage the kidney and cause kidney failure? You know, does it create something that crosses the blood-brain barrier and then, you know, kills all the neurons? So these are really important questions that you can ask on on a chip um, and that's why animal studies can be so helpful is because they they replicate that whole body response but obviously animals don't translate directly to humans we have very different metabolites we have very different enzymes and very different physiologies and so that's really where chips can come in very handy yeah for sure oh okay so um which application of organs on chips do you feel has got the most potential that has not yet been realized so i feel this links on quite nicely to the previous one yeah, I think this kind of else. feeds into the, mm. the question of the future of chips as well. So mm. there's so many different places where chips could come in handy. But I think the thing that I'm really excited about is uh, the concept of using them in clinical trials uh, uh, areas. You know, like you referred to, if you can get them into a, a, a hospital lab and yeah. you can start running tissue chips from patient biopsies that you've just taken and you do some differentiation and some IPS technologies and you can create a linked system that will replicate the the disease uh, pathology that they're showing and then start testing drugs in them so that you're not testing them in the patient and potentially making them quite sick. I think that in itself would just be phenomenal and I think it, that's a really exciting area that we should be aiming for. No, it would be. Uh, it's absolutely fascinating. It re- it really, really is. And um, I, I mean, if I if I can add to that, I would love to see. Um, and maybe you can make this happen. <laughs> you know, I would love to see some sort of benchtop instrument that could also do genomics type sequencing on samples. Yep. You know, so this is a completely automated workflow, and then you can get this this real time transcriptome or um, whatever it is that you want to you want to look at like and you, it's just so minimally labor intensive yeah. so it just it, that, I get that in every hospital that is, oh, yeah 
I mean, the, the, the number of yeah. lives that would be saved alone, the number of time, uh, the amount of time yeah. that would be saved, it's, it's just, yeah, it's, it's, so, it's such a fascinating um, like yeah, way to absolutely. go. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, think if you had that kind of technology and you could take it out to a rural hospital in Africa, yeah. you know, you yeah, could yeah. start you know, understanding rare diseases in ways that you just, because, you know, people don't have access to healthcare, then what are they supposed to do? So, you know, there's there's so many opportunities for that kind of technology. And yes, we're very interested in how we can make that kind of thing happen. Definitely. And you're also very interested in how we can do this in space. And this links yes. beautifully into the next <laughs> section. And it's this is what I've been so excited about um like to to discuss with you, because obviously, I've you know, I've read the literature, I've seen, seen your papers and yeah, um, well, actually, let's just start really simply. Um, how big is the biological research in space field? Because I imagine it's a little restricted right now. <laughs> yeah, so so let me preface it with saying that anything sure. that's done in space is under NASA's purview, right? Okay, but there is a national lab. There is a national lab up on the space station. And so that's where NIH has been working with NASA and the ISS National Lab to do some research. So everything that's going to come after this is, uh, you know, is sort of, you know, thanks to NASA because they're letting us use some of their facilities. But um, I mean, in, in the general sort of the, the question you just asked about how much biological research is being done in space right now, the answer is actually a lot. Um, oh, okay. There's a lot of facilities up on the space station for for lab research. Um, oh, would you do... like? Oh, yeah. What, what can you give an overview of that? Because I'm yeah. I'm so NASA sure what... are the definitely the right people to to give a better answer than me. So if okay. I screw up any of this and anyone from NASA is listening, then I apologise. <laughs> um, but there are there's some great lab facilities up there. There's some microscopes. There's uh, they can do quite a lot of cell culture up there right now. They've got all oh, wow. kinds of plant biology that's going on. Um, they have some ultra cool uh, physical sciences and chemistry type experiments that are going on with things like the cold atom lab. But, you know, on the life sciences side of things, they've got wow. uh, they can do gene sequencing now so they can, you know, sequence bacteria that they find up on the space station. That's um, cool. So and they've got all the basic lab facilities, you know, freezers and all of that kind of thing, which is is difficult to do in space because just the way that the air convection goes is very different. So, you know, their whole kind of everything that they do in the lab up there is very, very different to how we do it down here. I mean, apart from anything else, imagine if your pipette floated away every time. (laughs) So I mean, how would you even like because in space, there's like no gravity. Can you can you transfer a liquid using a pipette? Does it work such or it does? Yeah, it does. And so there's a lot. A lot of the astronauts who've been up there are actually scientists and they're trained lab scientists so you know okay. we, we love them a lot but um, <laughs> they've done a lot of work in really just kind of showing how you can do research as you would normally but there are certain things that are lacking so buoyancy is different um you know uh, uh convection is different there's definitely different mm. things that uh that, that things happen differently but that hasn't that doesn't stop lab research happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, it means there's a lot of Velcro involved, so that things don't float away and you can stick them down. But um, I mean, Kate Rubins, who is uh, she's actually a, um, an infectious disease scientist by training, mm-hmm. and she was actually showing that you can pipette on a 96 well plate without it needing to be like enclosed because the surface tension of the oh, liquids of is actually yeah. enough to keep it in in the well. So cool. it's just. I, there's just really interesting things that happen, but it doesn't preclude any kind of lab research being done that we could do down here. Okay. Well, I mean, uh, potentially stupid question, but I, th- I feel like it's also one that needs to be asked. Are there any facilities on Earth that can successfully mimic the environment in space? 
Yeah, that's harder to do. So there are okay. certain ways that you can model microgravity here on Earth, um, and they're for different amounts of time that you know you get kind of that exposure. So there's these things called drop towers, and the clue's in the name. It's literally a tower that you drop something down, but <laughs> when it hits freefall, that actually mimics microgravity just for a few seconds. Sure. Um, there's also uh, there's different kinds of machines called rotating wall vessels or uh, they've got uh, clinostats is another name and they're essentially ways that they can you know for small samples or even for like plants or seeds they're ways that you can essentially uh, rotate something kind of gyroscopically and it's um, it, it does it reduces the gravity vector basically it kind of cancels the gravity vector pulling it down out so it models microgravity to a certain extent it doesn't do a fabulous job but it definitely recreates some aspects of microgravity so there are some ways to do it here on earth but it's not like we can just go into a room and press a button and then gravity disappears because that would be amazing doesn't work um, no. you know there's there's also the things called the vomit comet which is the parabolic oh, wow. flights okay no no I so so this is another way to model microgravity. It's basically a jetliner goes up and then it literally just does a series of humps and bumps. Uh, so it'll climb and you get a little bit of hypergravity and then it will go over the top, you know, over this parabola and you get about 20 seconds of microgravity during that time. So that's right, right. actually a way that uh, anyone who works in the microgravity space, you know, with NASA and also private companies, they do a lot of the testing of their equipment that might go up to the space station on these parabolic flights because it gives them a certain amount of time to be able to see how their platform works, how their system works in microgravity. It's sure. also a really great way to get people uh, exposed to microgravity and do kind of physiological experiments as well and find out how they respond to microgravity. Ooh. But uh, like so, I said, if anyone from NASA is listening and I bungled all of that explanation, then I'm, I apologise. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you didn't. I'm sure you didn't. But um, just very quickly, what's the uh, difference between microgravity and sort of no gravity? Or is there no difference? You know what? Again, I am not the right person to explain this because that <laughs> okay. definitely goes into the more physical realm. Okay. Uh, but my understanding is that on the space station, uh, there is still small amounts of gravity because we're still very close to Earth. So the space station is actually only like 250 miles away. It's just going really, really, really fast. And the fact that it's going so fast, 17,500 miles an hour, and the fact that it's so close to Earth, it basically means it's in a state of perpetual freefall. And that's what the term kind of microgravity is in that respect. Uh, I, see, I think I see, true I microgravity, I hesitate to speculate in case I screw it up, but I think true microgravity, you need to be really far out and far enough away sure. from a planetary body that you would feel that kind of gravitational pull. With you, um, okay. So yeah. yeah, so low Earth orbit, which is where the space station is, is technically microgravity, but it's also technically just endless freefall, which also mm. sounds really exciting. It it does, it does. I suppose you can experience that a little bit with parachute diving, right? Like if you is that the same sort of gravity, or is it when you hit it's, that um, terminal velocity, is it terminal similar? Terminal velocity, like that? yeah. So I am actually a skydiver, so I'm very familiar with that. Oh, okay. Um, it's very different when you're skydiving because you have a lot of air molecules in the way that are smacking you in the face and all over your body as you're on the way down, right. so you get a lot of drag. Yeah. So it doesn't feel like falling, but it also doesn't feel like floating. <laughs> so <laughs> it's uh, 
it's 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 a bit different from the feeling of of microgravity i'm sure i don't know i'll okay. have to go up okay. and do some parabolic flights or try and get myself up to the space station and find out i was gonna say if you can <laughs> get yourself a ticket right to the space station <laughs> that'd know, be amazing right? seriously if i can afford oh. like 20 million or something for one of these new uh, blue origin type seats that they're, I know. they're selling well, can you not justify it on work expenses or <laughs> oh I, I should try i should try see if the u.s government will allow me to do that yeah <laughs> Um, okay, so can you give us an overview of what the different risks of being in space are and what effects it actually has on, on uh, different organs in the body? Yeah, so um, in terms of uh, astronaut health, mm-hmm. it's quite different to how NIH thinks about using space and microgravity. But certainly from, for astronauts, when they go up to the space station, there's a bunch of really interesting and not necessarily wonderful changes that happen to them when they go up to the space station. So first of all, they immediately start losing bone density because there's no gravity. They're not, they're not, you know, they're not feeling that biomechanical pressure on their bones and their uh, body immediately starts actually dissolving the bones. And so there's this really quick loss of bone density. Mm -hmm. Uh, The way astronauts mitigate that is they have to work out for like two and a half hours a day. They do a lot of resistance exercises. They have a treadmill where they're held on by bungees. So it like pulls them down to like 70% or something of their body weight. So they still kind of have that like, you know, compound kind of aspect that helps them retain bone density. Mm -hmm. Uh, They start losing muscle mass really quickly as well, because all of a sudden they're not having to fight against gravity. So they're just kind of, you know, floating around and, and it's wonderful and there's no kind of resistance for them so they start losing um muscle mass uh there's also a shift in the fluids in their body so when you're down here on earth a lot of uh, the heart works really hard to pump fluids up from the bottom of your feet because it's you know they're down there you know a few feet below your heart and so your heart's very used to uh, pushing really hard to keep pumping the blood around your body based on gravity when you get up to the to the space station or you know out in space um there's a readjustment of how your fluid um, is distributed in your body, uh, basically because your heart is now kind of working differently and, and pushing the fluid around differently. So that's sometimes where you see astronauts with kind of puffy faces because they get a lot of fluid up in the tops of their heads instead that's mm. normally drained by gravity. Um, and also they, they get what they call chicken leg syndrome because, again, <laughs> there's because the blood's not pooling in their feet, they get kind of, their, their legs look a bit skinny. So, um, so there's this oh, fluid shift. Cool. Mm. That, uh, that can place actually quite a lot of strain on the heart. Mm. So, you know, there's cardiovascular changes that can occur. Um, there's really uh, interesting changes to the eye as well, which we don't fully understand yet, but mm. there's changes in the shape. Yeah, so it's, I think it's to do with different kinds of cranial pressures. I'm sure it's mm. to do with, you know, there's lots of other more complicated reasons, but it's called, they call it space-associated uh, neuroocular syndrome, which is basically where kind of the... The, the the function of your eye changes slightly and it doesn't necessarily revert to normal when you come back down to earth so every pretty much everything that happens wow. to astronauts when they come back down here it reverts to how it was before sure. for better or worse um <laughs> but some things don't and sands as it's called is one of those uh radiation exposure is a big one as well so down here on earth we're very nicely shielded by the earth's magnetic field but up in space there's less of that and you get you know sort of more more um uh, more exposure to different kinds of radiation. 
Um, and then there's changes in the genomic level as well. So the mm. twin study, which was done a couple of years back, was this study of uh, Scott oh, and Mark that? Kelly, who were identical okay. twins, both astronauts. Right. Okay. You know, what a family, eh? Yeah. Um, and they, <laughs> yeah. they did a, a study where um, one twin went up to the space station. He was up there for a year. So Scott Kelly was up there for a year. And his brother, Mark Kelly, stayed down here on Earth. And they... Uh, took samples of all kinds of you know skin and blood and bodily fluids over the course of the Mm -hmm. year whilst Scott was in space versus whilst Mark was here on earth and then they were able to compare them uh, and look at you know all of the kind of omics responses as well and see a lot of changes actually in Scott's um, in Scott's uh, genetic uh, makeup that um, reflected how his body was compensating to microgravity so um if you want to read the details because i'm not the right person to talk about the twin study but you know if you google the twin study then there's uh, some fabulous papers that came out in i think science uh, last That's year really or the year cool. before that, yeah. that detail I'm, I'm all check of these amazing sure. changes yeah all of these amazing changes that happened to scott and how they differed from what uh, happened to mark here on earth over the course of a year <laughs> that's honestly fascinating okay um Wow. <laughs> so back to organs on chips then. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, because yeah, that's that's such a good overview. Thank you, thank you. Um, but then, what chips have you sent up to space, and can you share any details of chip experiments that have been completed in space? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the reason that NIH sent chips to space was not to look at astronaut health, and that's not because we don't love our astronauts. Oh, um, right. Okay. But it's I think because... I just assumed that. Sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, but NIH, NIH's mission is to understand human health and disease, right? Mm-hmm. So astronauts yep. are humans, so we want yep. to understand their health and disease. But we're really focusing more on the other seven and a bit billion of us down here on the planet who um, suffer from diseases and we want to improve their quality of life and everything. So, so the reason that we partnered with NASA to do anything with chips in space was because of these changes I talked about that happened to astronauts. They look really similar to a bunch of different kinds of diseases and aging states that happen down here on Earth. So that loss of bone density is just like osteoporosis. That mm-hmm, loss of mm-hmm. muscle mass is sarcopenia, which is an age-related muscle wasting, which is a big clinical problem. Yep, these changes same. in cardiovascular tone, you know, and, and, and how the heart muscle responds. There's obviously heart disease is a big problem down here on Earth. Um, astronauts can get kidney stones uh, with a higher, greater frequency. And so obviously kidney stones are a big problem down here on Earth as well. So mm. we actually are using the the uh, environment of microgravity as a way to model diseases on a really accelerated timeline because these changes happen really wow. quickly when astronauts go up there. So, mm-hmm. you know, the extension of thinking was, well, they're going to happen to the cells really quickly. And so if we can look at, say, the formation of kidney stones uh, over the course of days that could take decades to happen here on Earth, Mm -hmm. then we can start understanding diseases and looking at diseases in a way that we are not able to do here on Earth. So that is the reason why NIH actually is doing anything in space uh, is because we're we're hitching a ride on the space station to try and (laughs) understand diseases better and then potentially test drugs so that we can see, you know, does this drug react Mm. um, up here that would um, 
you know, suggest that it would work down here on Earth, but over these much longer time spans. So um, so we partnered with the ISS National Lab. And again, you know, massive thanks to NASA for helping us get up there and SpaceX as well. Um, <laughs> but we are looking every everything, every experiment that's being done up there is a direct uh, has a direct translational relevance to clinical problems down here on Earth. Okay. So we have chips that are looking at heart tissue and cardiomyopathy. Mm-hmm. We have chips that are looking at uh, the blood-brain barrier, which prevents various things crossing this kind of biological barrier to, to harm neurons. And so we're looking at what, how that's regulated in microgravity. Mm-hmm. Um, we're looking at uh, the immune system and aging of the immune system or immunosenescence, uh, looking at how T-cells differentiate. So T-cells are the kind of memory cells of your uh, immune system, yep. your adaptive immune system. And so we're looking at how that the, the omics of those cells change in space and what that might mean for aging mm. here on Earth of the immune system. So are, are uh, you able looking... to do the omics in space or is this something that you need to bring samples back down? Okay. Yeah, so we bring samples back down. So like you said, maybe in future we can do that. Mm. Um, but uh, we are currently not, if, you know, if NASA has those facilities, we're currently not using them up on orbit. We're bringing sure, samples sure, sure. back down for that. Okay. Um, but yeah, we're looking at muscle wastings. We talked about mm. sarcopenia. Uh, we're looking at uh, post-traumatic osteoarthritis. So arthritis is kind of a big problem with aging yeah. down here on Earth. But you know, we're looking at how that might be accelerated in space and what drugs can be used to help prevent or reverse those those changes. Mm-hmm. So we've got a real broad uh, range of chips that we're looking at. We've got actually we've got chips up there right now. Some experiments finished not long ago, looking at a kidney on a chip. Uh, mm-hmm. system which was like I referred to actually looking at the formation of kidney stones so the micro crystals that start forming at the beginning of a kidney stone and looking at whether that's accelerated in microgravity and therefore how drugs can uh, affect the formation of those micro crystals right from the get-go mm-hmm. so um, you know and the effect it has on the on the, the cells in that system so so yes yeah, so we've got a really broad range of chips that are up there and they're all doing that's something that's very important clinically down here so what have you found so far what have these what have they told you these experiments <laughs> so i won't uh, scoop any of our researchers if their results oh, aren't published yet of, so, of course sorry yeah but i, I can I, I can say that we are seeing some microgravity associated changes in some of these platforms and so what that wow, means is it's really cool. showing that microgravity is affecting the tissues on these platforms which in itself we weren't sure about we mm. were like we can send these chips up but Maybe they won't be bothered by microgravity nice. because they're they're functioning on such a small scale, you know, uh, relevant to you know, sort of different to a, a full human body that they might not care. So, <laughs> um, so it's quite a relief actually that you know we are seeing some microgravity associated awesome. changes. Yeah, so it's really suggesting that there is an opportunity to model diseases and understand biological mechanisms up there in space, which is tremendously exciting. Um, no, it, it and really then we're is. also. Yeah, and then we're also seeing how microgravity is causing these changes, but it's it's going to be opening up avenues for different targets, drug targets. So it's going to be showing us potentially new pathways of how mm. microgravity causes these changes that would open up what we might call druggable targets. So yeah. areas that we might think, hey, we didn't see this down here on Earth, but it's re- relevant to this disease pathology. So this is perhaps a new metabolic pathway that we can look at or a new you know, uh, protein on the membrane that might do something that we should be looking at. So um, we're expecting that a bunch of research papers will be coming out from our researchers in the next couple of years. 
Mm. Um, obviously, research takes a long time here on Earth, but when you're talking about only being able to hitchhike hitchhike to the station, you know, once every couple of years, then it uh, obviously takes a lot longer to get the full set of results that our teams need. But uh, yeah. definitely, preliminary data is uh, is showing that we're seeing some kind of uh, effects of microgravity on on our tissues. So oh, that's you'll have to wait cool. wait for the papers to come out. <laughs> yeah, of course, and I will read those papers with such enthusiasm as well. I mean, yeah, it's it's so fascinating. It it really, really is. Um, <laughs> I wondered about like aging as well. Like, it, it, does microgravity have an effect on aging? Like, um, a lot of the diseases you mentioned uh, were sort of age associated on Earth. So, yeah. is that a thing that astronauts lose a few years of their life because of being in space, or is that because of accelerated aging? How, how I mean, is that a thing, or have I got that? Yeah, no. So it, you, to a certain extent, there are mm-hmm. uh, effects that could influence aging, but I don't think anyone would say that uh, going up to space makes you knocks a few years off your life. Okay. Um, there's just not enough data to even look at that yet. And there's so many sure, things sure. that compensate for all the things that happen in your body. Yeah. But uh, referring again to the twin study, one of the things that they did show is that uh, Scott's telomeres um, mm. I can't remember. If, they shortened when he was in space, I believe. And the telomeres are um, on the ends of your genes and they can be modulated by epigenetic effects. Um, and I'm not going to mangle the, 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 the details on that. But essentially, uh, the changes that they saw in Scott that suggested that he uh, was showing um, uh, signs that were seen more in aged folks here on Earth, should we say, markers mm-hmm. that were associated with aging, should we say. Um, they did see in Scott, but they also saw that they pretty much reversed when he came back down to Earth. So it seemed That's to fast. show that you yeah. know if there were mild effects on his physiology when he went to space, um, you know, on the genetics or on his genes, then they were pretty much generally reversed when he came back down, uh, that, which I think is reassuring for anyone who's interested in going to space. It's not like they're no, going to turn into, re- you know, an old lady <laughs> or something. But. It's reassuring, but it's also fascinating because if there's some sort of epigenetic response, like you said, you know, in addition to the, the genes, then surely then there's a potential way to block the addition to the genes and you can delay aging right so exactly. maybe yeah this this holds the key to this is the fountain of youth is it <laughs> maybe, maybe. It's, it's certainly a little puddle in which we can start doing some experiments so amazing it's, it, it's uh, yeah okay I, again i've got thousands of questions but one that i really wanted to to know was what are the technical challenges associated with carrying out chip research in in space Oh man, so many. <laughs> so you know how we already talked about how here on Earth uh, you need a bit of a chip whisperer sometimes mm. to get your systems working because you've got microfluidics, you've got pumps, you've got tubes, you've got valves, yeah. you've got incubators, you've got refrigerators, you've got cell culture, you've got sure. sterility techniques, uh, yeah. you've got all of this stuff. And then on in a lab that can be hard enough. But then if you yeah. think you've got to shrink it down to something the size of a shoebox that can you can put on a rocket and blast up to the space station, <laughs> you have to make these automated self-contained platforms that are so robust that you know you've got to keep your cells alive. Even just keeping the the, the pumps going and keeping the cells fed can be so challenging. Mm. So the technical adaptations that have had to happen for these platforms is absolutely unparalleled. Um, it's so difficult. And so mm. all of our teams that we're actually um, funding, they have partnered with what we call implementation partners or payload developers. These are experts in the space field who know how to 
uh, get a mechanical system plugged in to a dragon capsule and you know keep it going get it plugged into the space station and and you know make sure the electrics plug in and they haven't put you know a uk plug on a us socket (laughs) that kind of thing you know so imagine oh god yeah but um, (laughs) that in itself is incredibly complicated and uh, requires uh, deep expertise in the space field so all of our teams have partnered with companies that are very um, skilled at doing this Mm -hmm. but then they've also had to shrink down all their systems so they've had to miniaturize them they've had to automate them they've had to make them very robust and those are not trivial challenges oh, no um, definitely not they've also had to make them straightforward enough so that um and this is not our words this is directly from the words of the astronaut terry verse um <laughs> that they are uh, astronaut proof or pilot proof because a lot of astronauts were pilots as well so they have to be so simple that someone as stupid as an astronaut and again his words not mine but someone as dumb as an astronaut can use these systems so they have to be very simple and straightforward to use as well the astronauts do get some help from you know an angel uh, sitting on a body cam and someone talking in their ear to help them talk through some of the procedures but uh, definitely the the technical adaptation for these platforms has just been so difficult and mm. uh just it's been phenomenal to see what our teams have been able to achieve wow yeah i i, I mean i've had to build my own uh, systems for doing organ on chip and uh, i mean miniaturizing it and making it, uh, it it's just such a uh, a minefield uh, there's so many things that yeah. can go wrong uh-huh. like you said it's absolutely yeah. it's, it's, it's crazy so um how how throughput are these systems that you that you're taking up? How many experiments can can you typically run in one payload? So it depends on the chip, it depends on the mm. platform. But um, we have replicates up there that uh, we had twenty four kidney chips, I think, that are up there right now. But they're triplicate chips, so mm-hmm. they're actually able to get seventy two replicates, biological replicates, which is pretty high actually as yeah, far as tissue high. chip technology mm. goes. Um, we've had, I think some of the experiments we've got coming up, we'll have 96 replicates going up. So we'll be able to get really high biological uh, replication, you know, the number of samples that we can run at any one time. Um, that's relatively unusual. I think Mm -hmm. for most chip experiments right now, they're pretty low throughput. If Mm. you can get maybe six or 12 running at the same time, then that's seen as kind of high throughput. And it's partly because like you said, it's, they can be very complicated to set up. Um, You know, you've got to get them all sat in the incubator with the pumps going at the right time and, you know, all this kind of thing. So, you know, to get as many as, you know, 72 biological replicates within, you know, a tiny system the size of a shoebox is just really remarkable. It is. It's fascinating. And it shows as well that there's all of this research is not just biological you really need all of the the interfacing of all of the different disciplines you need the robotics engineers you need the mechanical engineers all of this sort of people and it's very difficult to be able to even yeah to 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 get all of those people working together because everyone has such different ideas about things and yeah uh, so so i work at the national center for advancing translational sciences at nih Mm. right or ncas and everything we do is exactly what you just said, which is pulling together all these people from all these yeah. different disciplines, because we're looking at things, we're, we're trying to ask questions and answer questions that need all those different backgrounds uh, to be able to address these problems. Uh, yep. We call it, you know, it's translational science, but it's really team science. It's really mm. bringing together people with really diverse backgrounds, trying to get them all on the same page, and then 
hopefully trying to inspire them and get them excited about what they're trying to do, which certainly with Chips in Space is, is easy because everyone's very excited about that. Yeah, for sure. So, okay, are there any chips that are easier to work with uh, than in space than, than others? Um, I would say none of them are easy because there's of all the reasons we just talked about. Yeah. But I would say that the ones that don't involve flow, so that don't necessarily need pumps running 24-7 to keep the cells alive and might just need a media exchange every few days. Sure. I would argue that those are a little bit more straightforward just because the engineering needed to keep them going is marginally less complicated. Yeah, makes but, sense. Um, yeah, but I would say that, um, I mean, really, they're all, they've all been you know, very difficult to get off the ground, literally. The, 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 yeah, I mean, it's, it's so fiddly to do it uh, down here on Earth, that, you know, uh, manipulating all of the fluids and the droplets and all of that. Like, yeah. it's, yeah, to do it in space again when the droplets are misbehaving and floating off, um, you know, that would be <laughs> an absolute nightmare. Um, yeah, well, NASA's very careful about their biological containment. They have three <laughs> levels of containment for everything. So uh, we're certainly... Oh, okay. We have, uh, we have not heard of any... Um, of any of our samples that have escaped and gone floating around, but I couldn't possibly comment on some of the stories I've heard about various things floating around on the space station in the past. So. Yeah, I'm sure you can make a whole other podcast episode on that. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so to round it off, because again, I've got a thousand questions, but we, we have to uh, finish at some point. So what's the future of the Chips in Space programme? So the future of the Chips in Space program from our perspective is that it will be winding down over the next couple of years. We funded all of our teams to do two flight experiments and they have all done their first flight and most of them are now coming up for their second flight. So once their second flight is done, they'll be analysing their data and putting out their publications. Mm. Um, and from our perspective at NIH, we don't, we're, we're not ruling it out, but we don't have any big plans right now for additional programs with chips in space that said we've worked with so many people who have been so supportive and really interested in the technology that i fully expect that tissue chips will remain in the space realm in some form or another over the yeah. coming years just because of all the things we've talked about there's so many opportunities to understand disease modeling but also for you know with precision medicine like we talked about to understand maybe astronaut health you know, maybe start understanding the different risks that astronauts are associated with or that we'll be exposed to on long-term missions to the moon or further yes. afield. I, mm. You know, we, I would be, I would really love to see chips used in that context. You know, maybe there'll be chips on the moon in future, who knows? So we'll, we'll see how that pans out. So I, it's an exciting yeah. future. And down here on earth, I mean, there's still so much work to be done for tissue chips you know oh, yeah. we've got five or six different programs that just ncats uh, runs there are other programs across nih where different institutes and centers at the nih are funding chip research um, there are different government organizations that are running their own programs there's so much work going on in the private sector the pharmaceutical industry um, you know that there's just a real explosion of chip work down here on earth and i think we're going to see some really exciting um advancements over the next few years yeah i couldn't agree more and especially when you said about the long-term space journey i mean for colonizing other planets like has been talked about by obviously elon and you know that <laughs> tissue chips uh can play such a huge role in that and 
sort of like you know trying to understand the effects of of long-term space flight on like or even like trying to figure out how to do the you know you see those cryogenic pods in all sort of space movies that <laughs> yeah. people, people yeah. are in right you know that yeah. all, all that kind of research that's yeah tissue chips yeah. have got such a huge role so i mean it's it's, yeah. it's, it's such a fascinating space uh, yeah yeah and i would just jump in and say that the one thing that we always try and point out is that um the promise of tissue chips is super exciting Mm. but it's going to take a while to get there it's early technology like we talked about some of these challenges these are difficult challenges technical and biological and scientific so it's really going to take the whole community you know like we talked about those transdisciplinary teams to address some of these challenges Um, and also tissue chips even if you create a let's say a perfect system that is self-contained and automated and you know can be used anywhere um, it's still only a model of some cells in your body it's even if you link a bunch of them together it's still only going to be able to model certain aspects of your body and certain responses in certain contexts so i think we always say it's there's so much promise for them but we also have to remember that they're just one piece of the puzzle so there's going to be lots of other tools that people need to use to still address these questions and find answers to these things um so we're excited about what tissue chips can do but we also Mm. don't say that they're gonna you know be the panacea of everything biotechnology and that we're suddenly going to be able to do everything on chips yeah definitely but like you say you know it's um it's one of those things that they've got so much promise and you know the alternatives to animal experimentation in terms of animals and humans have just fundamentally different biologies that is going to be such a huge thing in in the drug development um uh, processes absolutely but then a lot of the a lot of the uh uh, of the sort of the comments in in literature right now are things like are, are tissue chips over promising and under delivering mm-hmm. and yep. I mean what, what see I, I knew I should have stopped asking because like, <laughs> but what do you think on that like uh, how, what do you think I think it's I think it's a really fair concern mm-hmm. um, I think it goes back to what we were talking earlier on about the importance of defining the context of use sure so if you're creating or developing a platform that is phenomenal for modeling bone cancer and looking at different drug therapy combinations and you can link it to a liver system and you can link it to a kidney system and see the off-target drug effects from this particular combination chemotherapeutic, then you've got potentially a really nice system that you can define the boundaries, you can define the questions, you can define very specifically the questions you're asking and how you get those answers. Um, I think... Because it's new and because everyone can see the promise, it does, it is, you know, tissue chips are um, vulnerable to the hype, you know, effect. Um, You know, you'll see something come super hyped and then it'll all kind of come crashing down and it just won't ever really get taken up. So that's why there's so much focus on almost kind of scaling back the excitement a little bit and being like, right, you know, what are the tangible things that we need to address, like validation, like cell sourcing, like, um, you know, robustness and reliability. And how can we do those things to build confidence? You Mm. know, we're doing a lot of things at NCATS to try and pull together uh, information from all different kinds of tissue chips. We have a, a database, an NPS database, where we're really encouraging everyone to put their data into it. And this database has amazing um, computational and analytical tools that can help you see exactly how reliable your platform is with different drugs, 
at different places. So again, like we were talking about chip whisperers, you know, chip whisperer at lab A mm. and chip whisperer mm. at lab B, do they get different results doing the same thing? You know, so we've got, we're, uh. we're funding this database that is pulling in all of this data that is really helping answer some of those questions to help build confidence in mm -hmm. the system so that it, it's not going to be subject to that, you know, that when that pipe bursts, um, that the technology won't just kind of disappear. So we really want to help sustain the, the interest whilst tempering the enthusiasm with the realities of what is possible right now and what still needs to be addressed. That's so cool. Um, yeah, thank you. I mean, yeah, that was that was such a wonderful overview of everything. I'm really, uh, uh, yeah, absolutely fascinated. Um, in the next section, I want to hear all about your career and how you've got to got to where you are. But for now, thank okay. you for, for that. Cheers. No, you're welcome. That was a great discussion. So for this next section, I want to hear all about your career path, um, and it's called When You Were Young. So uh, where did you grow up? Where are you from? And uh, what did you study as an undergraduate? So I am an Essex girl and proud. <laughs> I grew up in Chelmsford, Essex, um, and I certainly never envisioned myself where I am today. But um, I was very lucky. I went to a very good school in Chelmsford, and then I was lucky enough to get into Oxford, as an undergraduate, I went to Magdalen College, Oxford, and I studied physiology with psychology, mm. which was the kind of the closest I kind of got to neuroscience at that stage. Um, and the reason I kind of went for that is I was always a big biology nerd. I couldn't decide between biology and geology and, and geographical sciences. And sometimes <laughs> I think I made the wrong choice because I could be hanging out by volcanoes if I'd gone you know, down the geology route. But um, I went to a lecture in London at the Royal Society and it was by a female neuroscientist and she was absolutely phenomenal. And she was talking about the brain and it was like a light bulb went off in my head and I was like, that's what I want to do. I want to do neuroscience. Oh, okay, cool. So that was where I kind of decided to focus my energies. So I went off to Oxford, very grateful, mm -hmm. had a fabulous time. And then I went to University College London and did mm -hmm. my master's and then stayed there to do my PhD as well. Um, and I actually worked on pain research during my uh, master's and my PhD. So uh, pain is very translational in nature. You think about everything from the cell to the human yep. uh, and everything in between. So you have to kind of understand all of these different mechanisms. So I was actually looking at the long term effects of uh, pain during uh, childhood and um, so Ooh, the, kind of the neonatal period and mm -hmm. how it affects reward processing in the older animal in this case uh, but mm -hmm. also directly translating to humans so i was really interested in the kind of the pain reward spectrum which okay. uh, was very prescient because of certainly in the us now the opioid crisis over here so yeah of course so that was fascinating and then so, i was very what, so, so what did you find out sorry what was the um what was the outcome so i found out some really subtle effects that mm -hmm. um a repeated neonatal pain and in this case it was a, a foot wound in rats it was like yeah. um equivalent to a heel lance in neonatal babies and they have a little knife that goes and uh, hits mm -hmm. the the heel to take blood to check that their blood oxygenation levels are high enough but they have it done a lot and it's, it's a little bit similar to a skin incision um, 
uh, injury in animals, which is used quite broadly in the pain field. So mm-hmm. I found that a repeated uh, foot wound in neonatal rats actually very subtly affected their uh, responses to uh, food reward in adulthood. And in this case, I was using Ooh. Cheerios breakfast cereal because <laughs> rats love Cheerios. Oh, that's, but I was that's putting the reward. Them in, it's like chocolate. Yeah, and to I was them, putting right? them exactly. Oh, they love chocolate. <laughs> but I was putting them in like um. Uh, an aversive environment it was like a bright white environment which they had to like cross to to get to the cheerios and take the cheerios and Mm -hmm. i found that they they didn't um that they loved the cheerios just as much but when they had been repeatedly injured as as little baby rats they were a little bit less willing to go and get the cheerios so it was a very subtle effect. Um, it would have been fascinating to carry on that work and really kind of get into the neurobiological underpinnings of it, which I just kind of managed to scratch the surface during my PhD. But um, after that, I went to Montreal. Um, I went to McGill University in Montreal and was looking at um, chronic pain. So looking at the effects of chronic okay. pain and how it changes brain structure and function. Uh, and also how emotional and environmental factors can affect that chronic pain and the neurobiology underpinning it. So I was working with uh, a fantastic mentor and uh, um, PI called Catherine Bushnell, who mm-hmm. uh, is a, a brain imaging expert. And I was doing all these crazy rat experiments and rat brain imaging. And uh, wow. so that was lots of fun. Mm, and then she, awesome. um, she invited me to join her down at NIH uh, in the U.S., um, mm-hmm. A couple of years later, and that was definitely an offer that I couldn't refuse to uh, <laughs> to go to NIH. So I, I went to NIH in 2012, mm-hmm. and then I uh, transitioned over to the tissue chip program. So from neuroscience to uh, bioengineering, if you like, yeah, about five yeah. or six years ago. Okay. So. Oh, that uh, that's awesome. So I mean, just going back to all of these sort of thought processes that you went through. Um, you said it was a no-brainer to move to the NIH. I mean, fair enough. But in terms of when you were looking to do your uh, your PhD or your first postdoctoral position, mm-hmm. um, did you consider alternate career paths, or was it just that you you had in mind exactly what it was you wanted to do and you were you were just gonna gonna do it? Sort of why why did you decide to do any one particular thing? Yeah. So I think like I remember that lecture I told you about was very mm-hmm. pivotal when it was just like, wow, neuroscience is just amazing. And so I went off and did a master's before I did a PhD because I wasn't sure how I was going to get on with research. I didn't know what to expect because I hadn't really done it. Yeah. So the the master's was really a way just to kind of have a go in the lab and see what happened. And it was really fun. And I was like, this is so cool. There are so Mm. many techniques and labs and opportunities to just do fascinating research that I was just really excited about doing a PhD. And I was very lucky to get a Wellcome Trust scholarship to do it. Um, mm-hmm. to, to be down at UCL so um, you know I, I think without that I would have it would have been a different story but um, I was very very lucky and grateful to, to be awarded one of those so oh, nice. I was able to spend four years pottering around the lab and, and you know doing everything from electrophysiology to animal behavior to mm. clinical studies and human studies so really interesting exciting time yeah. Um, so then when, when you were uh, finishing up with your PhD, um, what, what was sort of like your thought processes? You, you, definitely, um, you definitely wanted to move abroad or because obviously you live abroad now, uh, expat living abroad. Um, but, you know, did you, did, did you ever consider staying on in your lab? And why did you want to move to this particular place? Was it because of the, the researcher that was, that, that was there? And then how did you contact them? You know, 
all of these yeah. sort of <laughs> yeah so no that's great questions um the thought process was that in science and when you do a postdoc mm -hmm. uh, even if you choose not to stay in science a postdoc is a phenomenal way to go somewhere completely different and live somewhere else for a few years so I was really excited at the prospect of doing that and I looked at a bunch of different labs that were doing really cool research that I was really interested in there were some in um, the west coast of America there were some up in Canada uh, on the west coast of Canada and Ooh. then I was actually running a um, uh, seminar series and I'd invited uh, Catherine, who ended up being my, my PI, to come and talk to us in London because she was doing such cool research. I was really interested and I was like, well, if I'm running the series, I'm, I get to invite her. So I invited Catherine over and she was talking about the research and I was like, that is amazing. And I was saying to her afterwards, I was like, Catherine, that is so cool. Can I come and work with you? And she's like, yeah, sure, but you need to find your own money. Ooh. And that was something that a lot of the PIs were saying was like, we'd love to have you, but we don't have any funding yeah. to go find it. Yeah. So that's when I started applying for a lot of different fellowships, a lot of funding opportunities. And I was very, very lucky. Again, I applied for one through the International Association for the Study of Pain or IASP. It was the John J. Benica Trainee Fellowship. Oh, and basically, okay. Catherine and I uh, found out about it a couple of days before the deadline, hustled together an application for the project I was going to do. And we put it in. And I was very, very privileged to be awarded that in 2010. 2009 I think it was but then that enabled me to go to Canada in 2010 because that actually covered a salary and some lab fees so Catherine was like brilliant we got some money come on over come join the lab so uh, so I was oh, able nice. to go over to her for a couple of years on that fellowship and then luckily you know the next thing came along while I was there but there was definitely periods when I was like oh god what am I going to do once yep. my fellowship yep. runs out you go back to the UK I was thinking at one point I was going to give it all up and go to Australia and join the circus you know definitely sort of worrying got, about yeah. what I was going to do next oh yeah oh yeah no I I, yeah. I get it it's it's really tough it's really tough yeah. and uh, one of the things that when I got to NIH um, I got very involved with was the fellows committee so mm -hmm. advocating for and representing fellows, postdoc fellows at NIH and across the country, because um, postdocs are really the, the, the workhorse of the lab. They do all the work. They're the most experienced people in there other than the PIs and some of the lab techs who've been around for so much longer. But mm. they're, you know, they're really the, the, the things that the, the people that make research happen. And I feel like they're just certainly in the US, pretty undervalued. Um, and uh, that that annoyed me, frankly. So I wanted to sort of stick up for them, stick up for them and speak up for them where I could. And I was very lucky that NIH is actually very supportive of its postdocs and uh, and its trainees. So it was a really good environment to be in. Cool. OK, so to round out the section, what um, what's your golden advice that you'd give to sort of postgraduates or, or post PhD? Um, so either in, in postdoc or if you're working in um, like mm -hmm. uh, industrial science in some sort of capacity, what what sort of advice would you would you give to people if um, they're sort of at a little bit of a, a juncture and they don't really know yeah. what to what to do? So from the pre PhD level, I would say if you're at the PhD level and you're working on it, don't give up because once you've got it. They can never take it away. And you'll have that little warm, fuzzy doctorate just sat in your heart forever. And trust me, some days that's what gets you through is like, 
you know once you got it they can never take it away so it's it's really it really is um an achievement to complete a phd and so i think it's very easy to forget that when you're in the throes of it or when you're thinking about it but i i would not uh, have changed my phd experience for the world as terrible as it was at times but you know ultimately massively fulfilling um once you get past that PhD stage, I think it's really important to bear in mind, certainly in the life sciences and in the biological sciences, that the job market is tough. There are not many positions for mm. academics. No, and it's very so competitive. I think, yeah, one thing I really struggled with, because I always wanted to have my own lab and be a PI, mm-hmm. and I did a postdoc for six years in the end before I was like, I don't think this is going to happen. But I think it's... It took me a long time to stop beating myself up over that and feel like a failed neuroscientist. Um, and I think that's something that uh, people with uh, or PhDs, they tend to undervalue themselves. They don't realize the, the, um, the transferable skills. I know everyone talks about transferable skills, but really the sort of the, the experience that comes with doing a PhD and the critical thinking and the scientific design and all of that gives you um, skills and experiences that really make you stand out in many, many areas. And so I think it's very important for people not to feel like a failure if they do stay or or choose to to leave the academic pipeline. Totally. But I think those who stay in the academic pipeline should enjoy it um, where they can. I know it's tough because I work, you know, having gone from trying to get the funding, I now work on the other side where we, you know, work with the people who we're giving funding to. So I, I really get it. But, um, you know, I think, I think the key is to uh, not lose sight of the science that you're doing and why you're doing it. Even because it's easy to get bogged down with the administrative crap and yeah. you know, all that kind of thing. But no, try it... and sort of take a step back and see the perspective of it sometimes and remember why you were excited about it in the first place. That, yeah, uh, that's wonderful. You put it so, so well. I mean... I think we're sort of fed the idea that being a professor is the be all and end all if you've yeah. gone through uh, being a PhD and it's quite difficult to realise what the alternative career paths are and that was also one of my motivations yeah. for starting this this podcast um, hopefully like giving people um, different ideas about what can be done and you know you, uh-huh. you've been such such an amazing uh, guest to be able to uh, shine light on that you you know you're sending chips organ on a chip into space like you know you're yeah. enabling all this amazing research that's going on it's it's yeah. you know you're involved in it at such a high level you don't have to be this person who's like yeah no. doing the administrative yeah. stuff it's yeah it's exactly and I mean, yeah. a lot of, you know, a lot of my job is administrative, is emails and it's meetings, mm. especially in the US government, there's a lot of bureaucracy. Mm. Um, but it's being able to um, go to conferences and talk to scientists and read papers and, you know, stay connected to the science, which is so exciting that sometimes makes the rest of it worthwhile. And in every job, there's always the bits you don't enjoy. You know, when you're in the lab, you still got to clean up afterwards and that doesn't yep. feel like bench research. It doesn't feel oh, like no. you're doing anything useful, but you still got to wash the beakers. You know? <laughs> so, so it's the same thing. You know, you've got to take the rough with a smooth in any job. Um, but I think it's really important to work out what works for you as well. Mm. So if you are excited by thinking about the broader 
um, you know, environment of science, or if you're excited about communicating science, or if you're excited about, um, you know, creating new biomaterials and mm. you want to be, you know, hardcore, like in your thing doing, you know, really amazing science, then I think it's just take the time to work out what you enjoy and what you think you're good at. Um, mm-hmm. And bear in mind that not every day is going to be, you know, unicorns and, you know, space stations yep. and, you know, <laughs> like perfect, you know, Western blots. <laughs> so. Yeah, it, is. it, it never, I've, I'm still yet to get one, to be honest. <laughs> There's always a smudge. <laughs> There's always a smudge. <laughs> so, yeah, that's my advice. So I'd like to get some final thoughts from you now. Um, we've sort of talked about this a little bit already, but in 50 years' time, how do you see the future of organs on a chip? Ooh, in 50 years' time, <laughs> I would love I would love to be able to see multi-organ-linked systems that create a body on a chip, but created entirely from stem cell-derived sources from you as an individual. So take mm. some blood, take some skin, populate a whole body on a chip system. Um, I would love for those to be able to be broadly available in hospitals, labs all over the place, on the moon, in space, yep. on Mars, by that point, who knows. <laughs> um, yeah. But really, essentially, uh, re- reliable ways to recreate you on a chip so mm. that um, you can understand how your body works in this kind of avatar system and look at how drugs might affect it, look at how diseases might affect it. Um, but also, you know, get treatments that work for you specifically through those kinds of systems. Definitely. So you have a great overview of organs on chips, uh, but you've also worked in many different areas. So in science in general, which emerging trend, and try not to be biased, I suppose, towards organs on chip here, we are are both in the same uh, sphere, but which emerging trend in science in general do you see as having the greatest potential? So I'm really excited right now by synthetic biology. Um, I think that's uh, got tremendous promise um, for all kinds of um, different applications. Um, Some of the stuff that we're doing at NCATS is really exciting. We're doing some sort of uh, crazy science fiction style ideas where we're talking about um, understanding uh, or creating uh, diagnostic um, diagnostic, um, devices that can... um, sense uh things in the in the air and kind of smell things in the air and diagnose you that way so i guess development of really kind of crazy sci-fi tech i think is really exciting um and i mean i think i'm just really excited to see how stem cell technology continues to Mm. grow that's not like that's not necessarily like the the kind of the the coolest craziest thing on in the world but just the promise of stem cell technology is so vast that i think it's going to be really exciting to watch I mean, we're missing a library of um, protocols for all the the different cells in the body, like to be made via yeah. stem cells. That you know, yeah. that in itself, freely available. Yeah, and um, partnering oh. it with you know, joining that with you know the new techniques in genetics, mm. omics, and CRISPR, and all of that that are coming out. I think is just going to be so exciting to see how creative people are with those technologies. Yeah, uh, uh, totally. So. This is the very final question, and this is the series finale. And um, it's been brilliant uh, for this for this entire uh, podcast season to hear all of the different answers to this question. So uh, to round out the season, uh, Lucy, um, if you could do it all over again, what would you change, and what would you keep the same? You know what? I don't think I'd change a thing. 
I think <laughs> everything I've done from the 14 to 16 hour days in the lab at the end of my PhD when it was just like, just get through it. Yeah. I would not change that for the world because everything I've done has led to the next thing, whether deliberate or accidental. And I'm having a blast. <laughs> I'm really excited to see what's going to be coming up in the next few years. Yeah. And so, yeah, I don't think I'd change a thing because it's been an absolute blast and I'm, I'm excited about what's next. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time, uh, for appearing on the podcast. I really, really, really enjoyed that discussion and I wish I could <laughs> ask, you know, a thousand more questions. So we might have to get you back on at some point in future. But, um, but yeah, thanks again, Lucy. I really appreciate you coming on. Oh, no, that was wonderful. Such a great discussion. Thank you so much, Alex. What a way to end this series. Organs on chips in space. A huge thank you to Lucy for such an amazingly inspiring episode and a massive thank you to all of the guests who've appeared throughout season one. Importantly, I really want to thank you for listening and for supporting this podcast. It'd be nothing without you and I hope that you've been able to get the advice that you would not have been able to get elsewhere. Making a Scientist will be back for a second season later this year with more high-profile guests and early career researchers. Be on the lookout on our social media for clues. If you've got any suggestions for future guests or questions you'd like to hear answered on the podcast, please get in touch. It would be amazing to hear from you. If you can keep spreading the word about the podcast and give it a helping hand by following us on Twitter, rating us on Apple, Google or Spotify podcasts and subscribing on our YouTube channel, I'd be so very grateful. That's it from me. I'll see you in season two.